seated. Open to 1 John chapter 4. We'll look at verses 7 through 12 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Um, One commentator says of this passage, particularly of what you see in verse 8, um, that this is the summit of all revelation. The summit of all revelation. Everything that God has revealed about himself in the world throughout history, particularly in the scriptures, everything that he's uh, had written down for our benefit in our relationship with him, here's the summit of it all. Um, And it's that God is love. God is love. That's the summit of all revelation. And in our text, uh, you know, we see something repeated a few times. We see the fact that God is love in the context of uh, a command that appears three times, <clears throat> let us love one another. God is love, is the summit of all revelation, and the effect that that has uh, on us as we come to know it and understand it and dwell in it, <clears throat> in that truth, is that we should love one another. So God's love, uh, God's nature as love, God's, God's love itself is the foundation for our love, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. <clears throat> we're going to talk about three things. How God is love. Secondly, how God has loved. And then third, how God loves. How God is love, how God has loved, and how God loves. And, um, and we'll look at the way that uh, this is the foundation for our love in each of those things. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, uh, we have prayed as we sang um, that your Son would bestow on us all the gifts that flow from the Spirit, and the chief of those gifts uh, that come through the Spirit is our union with you. We have to know about it. We have to read about it and hear about it in your uh, revelation. We have to know who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be to us through Jesus Christ, and Uh, More than this, we have to have something inside of us changed so that that will be beautiful and wonderful and attractive to us rather than um, threatening and repulsive to us. So we pray that as we consider your word this morning, this greatest of all your revelation to us, that, um, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the gift of illumination and, uh, and regeneration, that you would make our hearts new, that you would transform our minds so that uh, we would see who you truly are, that we would be uh, drawn into true relationship with you, and that we would be changed by it into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, 
and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's a lot going on in that. Uh, earlier in the series on First John, I mentioned the fact that John has a particular way of writing, and it's more mystical. I still couldn't find much of a better word for that. Maybe spiritual is a, is a good word for it. It's uh, contemplative. It's something that we should slow down and consider uh, things, even three little words like God is love. Um, if you want some homework for the rest of your life, you go think about that. It'll keep you busy for the rest of your life. Um, and so we need to slow down and look at what he's saying in, um, you know, he uses simple language, but it's uh, maybe a bit confusing to us. So we need to uh, take a look at it and, and contemplate what's going on here. But I think um, we need to start with thinking that, you know, our, our love, here's a misunderstanding about Christianity is that it's primarily about our love, right? Um, it's common for us if you're, if you're going to describe Christianity to somebody else or somebody who assumes they know what Christianity is, there's just this concept that, um, well, it's about us, right? It's about our love. It's about us being good people, um, my being a good person. And uh, the truth of it is, that's a, that's a misunderstanding, that the core, the essence of Christianity is not about me. It's not about what I do. It's not about me changing in some way to do something differently. It's not about my love. That's, uh, that's not what Christianity is about. The, the core, the essence of Christianity is the good news of God's love for us in Christ. So if somebody asks you what Christianity is about at its core, you better not answer with anything that points to our behavior or our love. Uh, say something that has to do with our activity, right? Uh, if somebody asks you what Christianity is about at its core, uh, it's about God's love to us in Christ, and it's about good news, good news that God loves us. And so, um, uh, but, but Christianity is, uh, it may not be primarily or essentially about our love, but it has much to do with our love. Our love is a response to God's love, and it's always a response. Uh, and our love here in our, our passage, um, you know, we see it three times repeated, we should love one another. So that, I mean, it's at least a significant part of our passage is, is about our love. But our love is meant to be able to assure us that we know God. It's meant to, to say, you know, if, you're, if you love as a response to your relationship with God, as a response to God's love, then you can know that God is at work in your life, that you have a relationship with him, that he abides in you and you in him. You can really know that, that that's a true relationship that you have with God. Uh, you can be assured by the fact of your love, but only if your love is really a response to his, his love, right? Only if you actually do know him. Only if uh, your love comes from your relationship with him. So, um, so that's where we should focus is, uh, is what his love is about, who he, who he is when he says, God is love. What does that mean when it says God has loved us and God loves us and his love is perfected in us? What does that mean? So that's what we'll look at. Um, first, how God is love, and this is talking about his, his very nature, his very essence, his very being. It says, beloved, uh, starting there in verse 7, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this first point, uh, I want to actually break down into three subpoints, and I'll treat them quickly. You're not here for an hour-long sermon, so uh, you won't get that. But uh, really quickly, three things about 
this statement that God is love, um, and it's, we'll just go through it and emphasize the fact that God is love, and then that God is love, and that God is love. Right? So those three subpoints to this first point, that God is love. God is love. God. Right? So uh, it's pretty common in our culture to hear something to the effect of love is God. Right? Love is God. Love is all important. <clears throat> Some kind of nebulous concept of, you know, this all-pervasive force of love. Um, and that's not what this text is saying. It's not saying that love is God. Love is not ultimate. Love is uh, not the, the ground of all being, in a sense, uh, unless you're talking about the God of the Scriptures, right? So it's God who is love. Um, hopefully that makes some sense to you, making that distinction, but it's God. It's, it's Yahweh, right? He's the God of the Old Testament. He's revealed to us by his personal name, Yahweh, <clears throat> and Yahweh means he's the one who is. He's the one who is. That means he's he really is. Uh, there are other gods that are not gods that they are not, right? They, they really are not. But he really is. And it's, it's more than a statement of just the reality of God when uh, he reveals to us that he is the God who is. He starts that with uh, Exodus 3 when he's revealing himself to Moses. And Moses asks, you know, when I take this message of deliverance back to your people who are in captivity in Egypt, who am I going to say this is from? And he says, I'm the one who is. I am who I am, right? I am. And Jesus takes that language to himself in the Gospels, uh, which probably is another sermon. But um, he's the one who is. What is he saying by that? He's saying that um, he's saying a lot, probably more than I can sum up right now. But, but the fact that he is is a personal statement of his being uh, the, the foundation for all of our reality. We are, we have being in a way different than his being, right? His being is ultimate. His being is supreme. And, uh, and his being is personal. It's personal. And that's why it could be said that God is love. Because if you, if you say, you know, for example, Eric is love, that doesn't make much sense, right? Uh, clearly, if you know me, you know it doesn't make much sense. But uh, if you say something like Eric is love or, you know, Supply your name there instead. Your name is love. That, that has an effect of depersonalizing us, doesn't it? And if I were to say Eric is love, not only does it sound weird, but in a sense, uh, according to our understanding of being and our understanding of love, it, it, it makes me, it, it kind of turns me into some kind of a nebulous uh, idea of some kind of positive force, right? Uh, and it, it takes away the personality Right to say something like Eric is love, if that makes sense to you, as a it, it shouldn't make sense basically. But to say God is love is to say that the one who is, who is the foundation for all reality, uh, he is love. That does not depersonalize him, and in fact, it makes personhood, personality, and relationship and love at the core of everything. He is not impersonal. He is supremely personal because he's the triune God. Right? Because his being is. His being is three persons. That doesn't even make sense to me, <clears throat> like how that's possible, but we know from the scriptures that it's true, that his being is three persons. One being in three persons, and that's how it can be that, that God, this, this supremely personal God, this supremely relational God, 
is love. So that's the second sub-point here. God is love. That's his nature. That's his essence. Because he is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who have existed forever, uh, from, from eternity, before anything was made, before there was even time, God existed in three persons in mutual love. And, uh, and he had no beginning. There's no beginning to his love. There's no beginning to his being love. There's no end to his being love. He is eternally love. And Carl uh, <clears throat> Barth has some pretty uh, amazing, profound things to say about that in his church dogmatics, and I'll um, run through a few of them. He says that the statements that God is and God loves are synonymous. The statements that God is and God loves are synonymous. They explain and confirm one another. He is both the one who loves and the one who is loved, even though there were no creature for him to love and to love him in return. So before he made anything else, before there was anything else, apart from his own being, he was the one who loved and the one who was loved. He didn't need us in in order for there to be love. God loves, and the purpose of his being is to do this. The purpose of God's being is to love, is what Karl Barth says. To do so, he does not need any being distinct from his own as the object of his love. Thus, the love of God is free, majestic, eternal love. It is God himself in all the depths of his deity who summons and impels us to love. He can and may and will love us. He does, in fact, love us, and he makes himself the basis for our love. He makes himself, not just his love, he makes himself the basis for our love in the statement that God is love. Um, Jesus says in John 17, as he's praying to his father, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the eternal love that the Father has loved the Son with, before there was anything else, without there needing to be any other being created in order for God to express love, the eternal love shared in the Trinity is going to be in us, And Jesus in us, and that's the foundation for our love. So when you come to know the God who is love, the God who is love, and there is no other God who is love, and there is no other God who even provides the foundation of love in the the essence of his being, in his nature. There is no other God that um, we can say is the source of love in his being. But when you come to know that God... Uh, who has been love and always will be love, then he and his love abide in you. And it changes you from the inside out. And, and that love, then, is the third sub-point of this, God is love. Uh, what is the love that's, talk, that's talking about here? It's not, it's not that, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the love that's of your own private preconception. It's not the love that's of our shared cultural presuppositions, definitions. Right? There's a whole lot of ways that, that we understand uh, love um, wrongly. Right? When it says God is love, it can't be those ways. And for us, primarily, I think, uh, around the world, universally, uh, a wrong conception of what love is is um, something that makes me happy. I love you if you serve me. 
if you benefit me, if I get something from you that makes me feel better or that uh, promotes me or um, advances me in life somehow, that's, uh, that's the standard kind of cultural definition of love uh, around the world. Uh, our private pre- preconception of love is shaped by this neediness, this taking. And, um, and that's not what is being said when it said God is love. Right? Uh, you need your, your definition of love to be shaped by the scriptures, by the revelation that, that God is um, telling you about who he is and what he does and, and what his love is really like. And so we need to define love, according to the scriptures, as complete self-gift. Complete other orientation, complete living and sacrificing of the self for the sake of the other, for the good of the other. And that, when, um, when you understand that God, the God of the scriptures, is, he has this as the, that, that's what his being is. His love is this kind of love. It's this kind of self-gift. Then, um, then you see that at the source of all reality, at the origin of all reality, of all being, at the heart of all reality is the fact that God is love, and that makes love pretty important, doesn't it? I mean, clearly God is important. Um, and if God is love, he's this kind of love, then it makes that kind of love very important for us, and that's why it's the basis for our love for each other. Right? Loving each other is not some superfluous thing. It's not some add-on, just extra appendage in our life. It's not uh, something that we do that's just uh, unnecessary. It's at the core of reality, because God, who is the the fount of all being. Uh, God is love. He is this kind of love, and so that forms the basis of our love for each other. And if we have a relationship with him, we'll start to respond with this kind of love. And John Stott says in his commentary that the argument here in our text is plain and compelling. For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God, for the loveless one to do that, is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father. So if you're in a real relationship with God, it means that you've been born of God. That's what Jesus says. It's like you have to be born again. The Spirit has to regenerate your heart and make you new after the image of Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, to whom you've been united. Right? So you are brought into close, intimate communion with God, and, and as such, you're born of God. That means you share God's nature in some way, and that's a new thing to you as you become a Christian. Christians are born of God, and that means love is the family resemblance. Love is in your nature. Uh, Christians know God. And that means that uh, you have a relationship with the one who is love. And if you know him... And if you're born of him, then love will be true of you also. And if love is not true of you, it means you don't know him and you haven't been born of him. That's the simple argument of the text. The fact that God is love means that those who are united to him and who come from him in a sense um, will also love. And so uh, that, I want to talk now about how God has loved. God is love. God has loved. Uh, And this is talking about the historical act that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The the gospel is not just a set of uh, philosophical ideas or doctrines or standard of uh, rules for moral living or anything like that. The gospel is a a historical fact. It's the kind of thing you read about in the newspaper, right? Um, It happened objectively at a point in time. 
and in a place in the world. And uh, that's how God has loved us. And it says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, so talk, referring to that historical act of his love, we also ought to love one another. So our, our love is not just based on who God is. It's what he has done in history in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so again, three, um, three little sort of brief subpoints to this. There's so much going on in the text. We could talk about it for a long time. But uh, <clears throat> how God has loved us, he's initiated with us, he's incarnated, and he's propitiated our sins. So initiation first, and, and how all of this is the foundation of our love. Initiation. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Like, we've seen this. It's become a reality. It's, it's taken place historically and objectively and verifiably. Uh, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So the initiation there uh, is... And you see it in a couple other places in our text where John calls us beloved. Beloved, right? The, the assumption of the text is that you have received God's love. God has shown you his love. God has loved you in the past to bring you to a place where you are now his beloved. And that, uh, I mean, he loves us first, right? He loved us first. We didn't beg him to love us. We wouldn't have begged him to love us. He loved us first, it says in Jeremiah 31, God said, uh, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I mean, before there was time, before there was matter, before there was anything other than God, God knew you and he set his love on you. There was never a time before God's everlasting love was not coming your way. <clears throat> and it, it finally came your way uh, fully and completely in the gospel when Jesus came into the world. But uh, Ed Welch says in one of his books, in the Bible... Who God is and what he has done always precedes what you must do, right? It always precedes. It doesn't just proceed uh, logically, that your love has to be a response to God's love or else it won't really work. It precedes it chronologically, temporally, right? Uh, that uh, he has initiated with you before you were born, before your grandparents were born, uh, before anybody you could find on one of those family tree websites was born, uh, God has initiated with you by sending his son into the world. And the second sub-point here is what he did when he did that. The, the son of God became incarnate, right? The incarnation is the son of God, uh, without giving up his deity, took on humanity. He took on a created human nature to himself. He added that to himself so that we might live through him. And it says, uh, I mean, the incarnation is, uh, is kind of like the, the centerpiece of the New Testament, the centerpiece of the Gospels, clearly. The incarnation, what, what God did when he became a human being, is what uh, manifests his love to us so clearly that he is the kind of God that would do this for us, that he would, become, that he would unite himself to a human nature forever, that the infinite, immortal, eternal God would take on a human nature to himself that he would never give up. Um, it says in Colossians 2, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in Philippians 2, talking about Jesus being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God the Son initiated uh, the relationship that he has with us by coming into the world because he is this God, because he is the God who is love. And not in spite of the fact that he is God, but because he is God, he loved us by emptying himself, by taking on a created human nature, by becoming a servant, by humbling himself for the sake of love. And so there's no conflict between his being God and his being the most humble human being ever, who perfectly submits to God. There is no conflict between Jesus being the God who is love and his being a human a humble human being. There's no conflict uh, between those things. In fact, he became a humble human being because he is the God that he is. Right? Because he is this God, he incarnated, he took on our flesh, he came into the world so that we might live through him. And that means uh, so that we would find ourselves in him, so that we would be united to him, so that everything that's true of him as the perfect human being would be true of us in a vicarious way, as we're united to him in a substitutionary way because he did it for us and we can't do it for ourselves. He, he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. We, we can't, we don't obey God's law even, uh, even, even a little bit. We really don't. But he obeyed it perfectly. He had a perfect relationship with God as a human being so that through his humanity we might live. So that through his humanity we would be restored to God, reconciled to God, and have a relationship with God. So that everything that's true of Jesus as a human in perfect relationship with God would be true of us as we're united to him by faith <clears throat> through his spirit. And he did all of that. He, he became a human and lived this vicarious sort of substitutionary life for us on our behalf, all for love's sake. All for love's sake. That's the manifestation of the love of God for us. That is how God has loved us when he did that. And we sang about it in uh, one of the songs we sang earlier, which is... Uh, generally a uh, song that we sing during Advent. There's really no reason why we should only reserve songs about the Incarnation uh, to be sung in December. So maybe we'll try to do something about that, which we did this morning. But uh, Thou Who Wast Rich, from Second Corinthians 8, which Nathan read earlier in our offering reading, Thou Who Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor, All for Love's Sake Becamest Poor. Thrones, for a manger did surrender, sapphire-paved courts for stable floor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. So it's the love of God that we see in the gospel in Jesus Christ that compelled him to initiate with us and to incarnate for us, to become a human, to live for us, and also to die for us. Right? The culmination of it, the culmination of the God who is love coming in the flesh is uh, his humble service, his suffering, his death. You see it in Gethsemane. You see it in his unjust trial. You see it in his redeeming sacrifice on the cross. And what you see is propitiation. The third subpoint of this um, is uh, God sent his son into the world, it says, to be the propitiation for our sins. And 
And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he did that. Right? He didn't love us because we were lovable. It says we didn't love God. This is not love. We didn't love him. He loved us. The relationship was not going to be restored if it was left to us. We didn't love him. We didn't deserve his love. He didn't love us because we were lovable. He loved us because he loved us. Because that's who he is and that's what he does. And his love moved him to deal with our sin, to remove it as an obstacle in our relationship with him. And he did so at infinite cost to himself. Infinite cost to himself. He, he propitiated our sins in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Propitiation is atonement. Propitiation is the removal of wrath. It's, uh, it's the exertion of wrath so that there's no more anger left. And that wrath is what we deserve. Like if, if we're just left to ourselves, in and of ourselves, what we do um, is so against God, against his nature, against his will, that um, if he truly is love and he sees all of that being violated and rebelled against in us, um, then, then he has not only every right to be angry, he must be angry. Because anger truly is a function of love. And, uh, and so in his anger, instead of destroying us, he sent his son Jesus to live for us and to die for us so that he would be crushed under the wrath of God for the, 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 the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And, and in doing that, Jesus absorbed the wrath that was coming our way. He did that on the cross for us. That was the propitiation for our sins. And that's how you can know the love of God. In this you know God's love. Not that you loved him, but that he loved you and he sent his son to die on the cross for you. Uh, Ed Welch again says that it, it's, um, it's one thing to know that someone smiles on us. It is another to know that behind that smile was the greatest sacrifice that could possibly have been offered. It's one thing to know that God loves us, that he has a smile on his face when he thinks about us. And, uh, and when you think about him, you should think about him that way, that he, he's not angry with you anymore, but that he smiles on you. But it's one thing to think that he loves you, and it's another thing to think that he loves you at the expense of his own son, the greatest sacrifice that could ever be made. And so in Jesus, we see God's love revealed, we see it made manifest, and we see God's love exercised. In this is love, not just in this is love shown to you or revealed to you. In this is love. This is what it looked like for God to love you. In Jesus Christ, God is not only saying, I love you, God is loving you. God loved you through giving his son. And you can't see this kind of love. And, and you can't truly see it and remain selfish. You can't truly see it and remain unchanged and unloving. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If he loved us this way, it should have an effect in our lives. And so the historical act of love in the gospel is the basis for our love of each other. <clears throat> and thirdly, um, you know, we've seen how God is love, how God has loved, and now how God loves. How God loves. Present tense, ongoing relationship that we have with God. The ongoing transformation that takes place because of his love for us. It says in verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So his love is perfected in us when we love one another. 
That is to say, his love uh, would not be complete if we didn't love one another. His love has to replicate itself for it to be perfected. His love is perfected, it's completed, mission accomplished when we love one another. That's what this is saying. Uh, John Stott says that the unseen God who once revealed himself in his son now reveals himself in his people if and when they love one another. God's love is seen in their love because their love is his love imparted to them by his spirit. God's love, which originates in himself and was manifested in his son, is made complete in his people. God's love for us is perfected only when it is reproduced in us or among us in the Christian fellowship. So God's love for us, we see it throughout the scriptures. It's kind of one of the key themes of understanding the whole Bible, that God loves us and he's done everything to, to, to love us, in order to love us. It's not meant, uh, you are not meant just to be a, a terminal kind of receptor of that love. Uh, if you were, that is cutting God's love off short. God's love is not complete if you are just receiving it for yourself. You're meant to be a conduit of God's love in this world. He loves us. This is the full expression of his love. This is, the, this is what happens when he loves us presently. He loves us by making us to love like he does. That's how he loves us, is to make us to love like he does. And so mutual love, this this complete other orientation, this complete self-giving, this complete service of the other, is it's the source of reality, it's the heart of reality, because God is love, and it's the goal of all reality. Because his love expresses itself perfectly, completely in your love. It's the basis of our love for each other because it's his love in us that uh, we are loving each other with. Our love is the result of God's love to us. It's the completion of God's love to us. And that's why it's the assurance of God's love for us. That's why it could be said that um, if we love one another, we can know that God abides in us. If we love one another, we know that God's love is at work in us. Um, and that's why it's the assurance of God's love to us. And so practically, this means that, um, as it says in verse 12, you know, nobody's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God. And even though we can't see God, he's revealed in our love. We can see his love in our love. We can see his love. We can see what God is like. We can see his nature. We can see the gospel at work. We can see his spirit at work in us. We can see his love. We can see something about him. He is revealed when we are kind to one another. Pretty simple. (laughs) Doesn't seem that important, but that's uh, striking at the essence of all being and the goal for all reality. When we're kind to one another, when we're patient with each other, especially when it would be a sore test of our kindness and our patience to be that with one another, right? Especially when it's hard to love. When you see that kind of love exercised among God's people, you can see God in a sense. You can see something about him. You can see his love. You can see him uh, at work when we serve each other, when we take care of each other's children, when we teach each other's children, when we watch each other's children in the nursery, when we 
serve through hospitality, when we express hospitality uh, at church, simple as bringing coffee and snacks. <laughs> I mean, when you express hospitality, when you ex- express hospitality by having others into your home, people who are not like you, Jesus says, people who are not going to reward you in the same way that you're honoring them with their hospitality, <clears throat> people who, who can't pay you back, people who are different from you, the strangers, um, who, you, who you might not have natural affinity with in many ways. You know? When you express hospitality, you're sharing the very love of Christ himself in a way that reveals God in this world. It reveals the, the being of God at work in your life and in this world. Uh, you see God at work when we're generous, when we support each other with financial assistance, you know? when we give to the diaconal fund once a month so that we can meet needs of people in the congregation, you know, when, you're, when you're generous <clears throat> to help each other, when we uh, visit each other in our sufferings, you, you know, several of you were there yesterday at the memorial service for Robert's mother. It's pretty simple, just showing up and being there for an hour and eating together, but it's pretty profound to Robert, right? When, uh, when we share each other's sufferings and visit each other and we weep with those who weep, you're expressing the love, the sympathetic love of Jesus Christ, of God himself, the God who is love, is... Um, Coming into the world and his, his love is being perfected in that. It's coming to completion. When we rejoice with those who rejoice, right? And instead of being envious at those whose circumstances are good, when we rejoice with them over their success, over good circumstances, when, when we share their joys, when we celebrate together. Christians have every reason to celebrate uh, all the time, even if circumstances are bad because of the gospel, and when we share our joy with each other, we're expressing the love of Christ, uh, and his love is coming to, to fruition in our love. And that's what it looks like when God abides in us, and that's how we can know that God abides in us, by his love at work in us. Amen. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are... Uh, truly amazing. Uh, We don't instinctively know what it means for you to be love. Uh, You have to show us, and you have shown us, who you are, uh, even by showing us what you've done in the gospel of Jesus Christ in in manifesting your love in the world at a particular place in time and a moment in history. We, um, We love you because you loved us first and because you gave your son Jesus for us. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, help us to make, um, make your love such a central feature of our lives that it transforms us from the inside out, that you would help us to express that new nature that you've given us by your Spirit, that you would help us to um, bring your own love to completion in our love. We pray that the love of Christ itself would spread through our congregation and into our community, and even uh, to the ends of the earth because of who you are and what you've done for us and our relationship with you by your grace. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.